welcome to the Weight Solutions for Physicians podcast, the podcast that helps you find solutions for your weight concerns that will last a lifetime. You've got this. This podcast contains general educational information on weight loss for physicians. I am not providing medical advice and listening to this podcast does not create a physician-patient relationship. This podcast does not replace a need for consultation with a licensed professional and no information should be relied upon unless you have obtained specific advice or treatment from myself or another physician. Please review the terms and conditions located at www.weightsolutionsforphysicians.ca before continuing. Welcome to episode 79 of the Weight Solutions for Physicians podcast. I'm your host, Siobhan Key. Thanks for joining me. I am a weight loss coach for physicians with a focus on helping physicians end the cycle of stress and binge eating. I'm also a practicing obesity medicine physician and family physician in Canada, and I have a lot of personal experience in that I myself have struggled with stress eating uh, significantly in the past and had to figure this out, and through that process, uh, lost 55 pounds and continued to maintain that weight loss. If you are a physician struggling with emotional or binge eating, could be one of the best things that you ever do for yourself. Using coaching to focus in on the true underlying reasons why you struggle with eating lets you get through it and figure it out at hyperspeed and then leave it behind you. And if you think about how much mental energy and time you spend thinking about this, if you're anything like I was and just trying to figure it out and feeling upset at yourself that you haven't figured it out. Honestly, when you are able to let that go because it all becomes so simple, it is such a relief. If you're interested in finding that for yourself, then head on over to my website, weightsolutionsforphysicians.ca and click on the work with me tab. From there, you'll be able to book a free introductory session where we have a chance to just talk face to face about how I would best be able to help you with your weight concerns. All right, today we have a special guest on the podcast, Dr. Robert Sivis. Dr. Sivis is a pediatric and adult bariatric surgeon. But more than that, he focuses on helping his patients actually figure out the underlying causes for obesity as the chronic condition that it is and everything related such as insulin resistance and related diseases. I think he's a fascinating person to speak to because he has very extensive knowledge on both sides of the fence. So he has extensive knowledge with bariatric surgery and how that impacts patients. But he also has really extensive knowledge about the limitations of it and how he's worked towards addressing those limitations, which I think is really good. As anybody who works in obesity medicine or in related fields knows is that bariatric surgery is a very powerful tool. Uh, It definitely can make people lose weight, but it's not the only answer. And we've all seen people who lose weight with their bariatric surgery, but then ultimately end up regaining. And the regaining is happening because of what we're going to be talking about in this episode today. So make sure you stay tuned and listen to the whole episode. It is packed with really good information. Make sure you check Dr. Sivas out on his website, which is obesityunderstood.com. And he's also on Facebook and Instagram using uh, the handle carbaddictiondoc. All right, let's get to the interview. Welcome to the show, Rob. Thank you so much for joining me. 
Thank you very much, Yvonne. It's great to be here. Great to be virtually in Canada again. Yeah, I, when I was listening to one of your interviews, I heard that you did training in Canada. Which part of Canada were you in? I was in a little place called Toronto. You may have heard of it. Um, oh, it sounds familiar. And sounds familiar. Yeah. <laughs> I spent uh, uh, my formative years in terms of understanding, deepening my understanding of carbohydrates and uh, um, sugar as a disease entity in Toronto. And I'm very, very thankful for the time I spent up there. It was, it was a phenomenal part of my life. Oh, excellent. Uh, so can you introduce, I know a lot of people listening probably are familiar with you, but do you mind introducing yourself for people who may not have heard you speak before? Sure. Uh, so I am a doctor. I'm a double doctor. I got a PhD, which I did in Toronto, as well as um, being a medical doctor. And I am a surgeon, trained to be a pediatric surgeon, but with a very intense interest in obesity management. So that's kind of my, my professional part. But the most important thing about me is that I'm a fat guy. I topped out about 300 pounds as a physician and have lost about 90 of those pounds about 20 years ago. But one of the key concepts is that no matter what your body looks like, this is always fat. And the second you forget that, the body follows that forgetfulness. So um, over the last 20 years, I've become more and more interested in what drives the obesity, what the causative factors are. And we've got some insights that I think we're kind of on the forefront of understanding. Um, you know, one of the key concepts for me about dealing with a lot of children in pediatric surgery is that we were dealing with endpoint diseases, polycystic ovarian syndrome, gallbladder disease, but we weren't able to understand why these kids were enormous or had diabetes. And the two, the two diseases are identical. Uh, diabetes and obesity type 2 are, are the same problem. So more and more of my time has been spent looking at that, but also using the work I did in Toronto um, uh, in my PhD, which really had to do with vascular injury caused by sugar in the liver, and really adding that to my scientific and biological understanding of how these diseases processes work. So that's my background. And uh, for the last 20 years, we've been managing uh, obesity with a carbohydrate addiction approach rather than a nutrition dietary approach. And I find your story interesting in that... Um... I think there's not a, you don't encounter a lot of bariatric surgeons who have an interest and background in the, the behavioral change in quite the same way that you do. Can you tell me how did you get into building that area of knowledge and that area of your practice? Well, the first part, it was personal. As I said, it was my own personal journey. But the other thing that bariatric surgeons, like all surgeons, are incredibly good at ignoring something they can't understand or fix. That's just a reality about being a surgeon. And no, the single greatest, the single by far, the single most effective form of weight loss is bariatric surgery. It's a band, a bypass, a sleeve, a duodenal switch. It doesn't matter. We start counting at 80 to 100 pounds. Most diets never, ever get there. But the reality about bariatric surgery, and surgeons kind of waffle this away, is that bariatric surgery is incredibly effective for one to two years at causing massive amounts of weight loss. But after two to three years, nobody loses weight because of the surgery unless there's a complication. And then one of three things happens. The majority of patients, about 85% of patients, irrespective of the type of surgery, gain some or all of their weight back. And most surgeons, savvy, experienced surgeons, will tell their patients, you're going to gain some of your weight back. But that shouldn't be a reality. The reason that happens is not because the surgery fails. 
but because nobody ever discusses the root cause of the problem. Um, the second thing that happens, there's some people that can't eat enough and they don't gain the weight back, but they can be profoundly malnourished. And the malnourished bariatric patients are actually more of a concern for me than those that gain their weight back. And does, does bariatric surgery resolve obesity for at least uh, obesity and diabetes for a transient time? Sure it does. The majority of people can come off their diabetic medication for a period of time, but it almost always comes back. So the, the primary interest for me was why does that happen? What is the issue? If we're so good, if the surgery is so effective at getting people to lose weight, why, despite that effectiveness, do they gain their weight back? And the critical thing that we, we discovered is, number one, if losing weight or getting healthy is your primary objective, you are going to fail repetitively because your excess weight is not the problem. It is the result of the problem. If you do not understand the underlying driving force behind this, no matter how much weight you lose, diet or obesity surgery, they're identical, um, except the diets fail a little bit quicker with a little bit less weight loss typically. Um, if you do not understand and address the cause, either intentionally or vicariously, you're gonna gain the weight back. Um, and, and so a large part of my personal focus with my patients is focused on helping them at least to understand the true cause of the disease. Then they can elect. I can't tell them they have to. I can't help any of my patients to address the cause. I can only help them to help themselves if there's an awareness of it. But at least the obligation is on us, and today the same thing, um, to, to create that an awareness. So as physicians, as we're talking mostly physicians, it is incumbent upon us to first see that we are human beings first. And very often the dysfunction that leads to uh, the cause of, of, of obesity is magnified in physicians because of who we are, how we become physicians, and some of the pressures and the forces behind us becoming physicians. That's the first part. The second thing is it is critically important. It is incumbent upon us as physicians to understand why our patients not only become obese, but also develop metabolic disease. Again, euphemisms for the same thing. Whether you have lung cancer or um, emphysema, as a physician, if you do not help that patient to quit smoking, you're doing them an injustice. If you just treat a person's liver disease, but you don't treat the alcoholism, I would call that almost malpractice these days. And yet every single day, we treat fat people, we treat diabetics, we treat people with metabolic disease, hypertension, uh, cholesterol issues, whatever that may be, PCOS, with a variety of medications. We, uh, we slow down the progression of the disease without ever understanding why they have the disease in the first place. And I believe that at some stage, that practice is, I, I'm going to use this word, is actually going to be malpractice. Because I don't know if you're in agreement, but to treat a patient's liver disease and still let them drink or not address their alcoholism is to my mind malpractice. And, yeah. and yet we're a decade or two away from understanding cause in the same sentence. So we can do a deep dive into that and maybe it'll resonate with some of the, the treating physicians. Yeah, I think that's really interesting in that, you know, it's very easy as physicians for us to see that in alcoholics. It's different for some of us to see that in food, right? Particularly pe people who the concept of sugar addiction or, or carbohydrate addiction is new for. It's sometimes hard to see that that can be equally as addictive as the alcohol and equally as destructive 
and detrimental to the person uh, eating it. Right. Two, two immediate comments jump into my mind. I think the greatest mistake that we make is calling it a food addiction. Mm -hmm. Two important things. Number one, nobody, 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 nobody is addicted to food. And food will never, ever make you phallodiabetic, period. And my definition of food are the substances that the human body requires for survival. And there are six elements, six broad elements to food. Water, protein, fat, minerals, vitamins, and trace elements. And those, biologically, as a physician, we understand a concept called homeostasis. And homeostasis is the biologic mechanism by which the body regulates systems. It is mm -hmm. regulated in a negative, uh, uh, a negative cycle biofeedback mechanism. So if anybody tells you how much water you have to drink, they know nothing about biology because you and I are different and I'm different at various times. So to tell me how much water I should drink on any given day is ridiculous because nobody knows. But what does know is my body. First is a very powerful uh, uh, um, stimulus. You start drinking and as soon as your thirst is quenched with whatever volume that is, a signal goes from your belly to your brain and you automatically stop drinking and there's no incentive to overdrink, and very, very few healthy people or normal people have a, a, a water overconsumption disease to the point of harm. Whereas with alcohol, it's very, very easy to overdrink alcohol. And the reason for that is because there is no negative feedback. There is no biofeedback for alcohol consumption. Puking and passing out is not feedback, it's consumption. Uh, sorry, it's, it's, uh, 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 it's toxicity. So therefore, you can consume alcohol to excess, but you cannot consume uh, um, water to excess or water-like substances to excess because of that biofeedback. In exactly the same way, your body will not allow you to eat excess, excess fat or excess protein as the two macronutrients to the point of substantial harm. It, mm -hmm. Your body just won't let you do that. And I urge anybody to do that experiment. The buddy of mine, Sean Baker, has been doing that for many, many years right now. And he's a brute, but he ain't sick. So th it's a fallacy that animal products make human beings sick in terms of caloric load. Because protein and fat is vital to human survival, it is controlled in a very tight feedback pathway. And there is a ho whole subset of hormones. I've coined the phrase, the leptinoid system to differentiate from leptin, because leptin is only one of those hormones. But there's a leptinoid feedback system that stops you when you're full from eating meat and it keeps you full for a long period of time. Same is true with, with certain vegetables, but there is zero stopping point for the consumption of carbohydrates. You can be full of steak or full of a salad and not be able to eat another morsel, morsel and still finish a tub of ice cream or a bag of chips. You're not eating more steak in front of the TV. So the point is there is no negative feedback regulation when it comes to carbohydrates. So therefore, Excess is possible exclusively with, exclusively with sugar and starch. And if you consume them to excess over time, just like with alcohol, that excess will cause harm. And if you ignore or distort the reality of harm, be it DUIs and liver disease or obesity and diabetes, if you distort or ignore the reality of the harm to continue the relationship, the relationship is out of control. By definition, you are an addict. So they call you an alcoholic, they call you a smoker, they call you, call you a crackhead, they call you a heroin addict, but they call us fat. They call us 
the name of the consequence, not the cause. I'm not a fat guy anymore, but I'm still a carboholic. I still have a problem with carbohydrates. And just like an alcoholic, if you put a tub of ice cream in my fridge tonight, I can guarantee you I'm going to eat it. But I can also guarantee you it's not there. So, so the point is, as long as it's there, as long as there is a beer in an alcoholic's fridge, they are vulnerable to consuming it. And it's exactly the same. Harm reduction does not work in addiction. And the first conflict is if you believe it's food, but human beings have to eat food, then by definition, we cannot abstain from eating food because you'll die. Mm -hmm. But when an alcoholic says they quit drinking, that's false. They didn't quit drinking, they'd be dead. But everybody knows when they say that they quit drinking alcohol, not water, they still drink water. And right. then the other premise there is that nobody tells an alcoholic what they should drink. But we love to tell all humans what's healthy to eat. Mm -hmm. And that is the problem. So why do you think the carbohydrate addiction and sugar addiction is so difficult for some people to swallow? Because it's not fully supported, even through the medical um, establishment. I think that there's two premises. The first one is the uh, biologically unsound belief that the consumption of sugar is necessary for human survival. And I can assure you enough experiments have been done by the carnival crowd, by myself, by a variety of other people that absolutely proves that for an adult or for a teenager onwards, the consumption of carbohydrates is not necessary for human survival. It is absolutely true that for a fetus and for a newborn baby, they have to consume some carbohydrates. That's why it's present to a certain extent in breast milk. But the, the greatest challenge is, yes, we have to have sugar in our bloodstream, but you do not have to put it in your face in order to stay alive. The, the liver has a phenomenal gluconeogenic uh, uh, capacity to produce all volumes of sugar and meet all needs. So the first, the first concept is that you do not need to consume sugar because it is not an essential substance. The second concept that the human brain needs sugar or biologically we need sugar, there'll always be sugar in the bloodstream for the biologically essential few cells in our body like red blood cells that are obligate carbohydrate users to have available. But for the most part, human beings are best functional in a ketogenic environment. The hu human energy biology is best suited to a ketogenic environment. And when it comes to the consumption of fat and protein, they can be used either nutritionally for tissue repair, tissue building, that kind of thing, or as a source of calories. Carbohydrates are primarily a caloric source. They really don't have a non-caloric nutritional function in the human body. So that's the first concept is that you don't need to eat carbohydrates. And then the flip side of that is this whole lipophobia that we developed in the 60s and 70s um, because, and it's an interesting story, is that um, we've been eating fat as a species forever. For as long as we've been a species, we've been consuming fat. And the more fat we've consumed, especially saturated animal fat, the more we have evolved as a successful human species because while our bodies are pathetic as animals, what differentiates us is this. And this is almost pure fat. 65, 70% of the human brain is saturated fat. And is, some of it is essential saturated fat. And about 30% of all the cholesterol in the human body is in the brain. So those two things are vitally necessary. But in the 1950s and 60s, particularly in the US, more and more people died of heart attacks and strokes. And when we did autopsies on those people, we found 
that there was this accumulation of lipid, of this gelatinous snot-like lipid. And if you've ever operated on a AAA uh, repair like I did at Sunnybrook Hospital in Toronto, uh, in my training, you'd see, you, you actually handle this gelatinous fatty muck. It's like gelatin. And it was so, it's so easy to then make the assumption that the fat in our diet is clogging our blood vessels because that's what we see in these blood vessels. And at the time in the 1950s and 60s, we doctors had so bought into the concept that there was no harm to smoking, that nicotine did not cause any damage. Now we absolutely know better. We've done this scientifically. We've tested it in a number of different models where it's not smoking per se, but it's nicotine, nicotine that injures uh, the endothelial cells. And nicotine and glucose have almost an identical effect um, of injuring the endothelial cell membrane. That's the work I did in Toronto in my PhD, looking at the hepatic, hepatic sinusoids, looking at the blood vessels in uh, um, transplanted livers when we gave them sugar. And these endothelial cells would round up, and if you infuse platelets or, or whole blood, little clots would form in those damaged blood vessels. Nicotine did that, and sugar did that. Glucose did that. Fructose, galactose as well. So we were observing an intravascular injury that whether it was nicotine or carbohydrate, the net result was the same. It was rounding up or boiling up of endothelial cells and exposure of the sinusoidal lining or of the underlying basement membrane. You then form a clot at that site and the clot would first be a platelet aggregate, a thrombus, then a platelet aggregate, white cells would come in. And the way the clot was stabilized, if it wasn't lysed, was with lipid, and the lipid was transported there by LDL because ApoB proteins are the anchors for that lipid in the clot. So lipids are actually anti intravascularly anti-inflammatory. They're part of the healing process. And then HDL removes that lipid once it stabilized the clot. But if you've got a repetitive injury or this cascade of inflammation, the lipid keeps laying down in multiple layers with ongoing injury. And that is, at least for glucose eaters, that is diabetes. In the microvessels, that clogs up the blood vessels and you get no oxygenation going downstream. Now, because it's a fairly slow process, you can at first get neovascularization and then it clogs, it clogs off the entire vessel and you get downstream ischemia, downstream, downstream hypoxia and death of the organs, which is your microvascular diabetic injury that occurs to every single organ supplied by blood in the human body very obvious in the eyes and the peripheral vascular system. In the larger blood vessels, those clots accumulate, you get turbulent flow, the clots break off, they travel downstream, they block the vessels, what's that called? A stroke and a heart attack. That is diabetes, that is what it is. Now, the way the human body defends itself, at first, with this chronic excessive consumption of sugar, is to convert sugar to fat under the influence of insulin. So it stores some of the sugar, it uses some and stores it under the influence of insulin. But the way the human body protects itself, the cells of the body protect itself from this abundance of sugar and this influx of massive amounts of water into the intracellular space. Because every molecule of glucose is attached to molecular water, the way the body protects itself is by those cells progressively becoming resistant to the insulin-regulated glucose uptake by those cells. So you develop cellular insulin resistance. And at first, if you are a high producer of insulin, you can overwhelm that insulin resistance by producing more insulin in the pancreas. And 
So therefore, people that are high insulin producers become obesogenic. They can convert all that surplus sugar into fat. And the ability to make fat, even though you may sit with a fatty liver, the ability to accumulate fat is protective of the diabetogenic injury in the blood vessels. But at some point, whether you're a low insulin producer or, um, uh, or whether you overwhelm that insulin production capacity, at some point, that insulin resistance results in an inability to remove adequate amounts of sugar from the bloodstream. So at first, in the obesogenic type of person, your blood indices may be normal. Your A1C might be 5.4, 5.5, a little elevated beyond the 5.1 that I like to see. Your blood sugar may be in the 90s, 100, 110. Most of us already are comfortable with a blood sugar of 105, 110. We're concerned, but not horribly so. But your indices are normal. No doctor or very, very few doctors ever test insulin or C-peptide. And what you'll find is your A1C may be in the normal range, your blood sugar may be in, blood glucose may be in the normal range, but your insulin is up at 15, 20, 30. I've seen it as high as 78 in some people. And those people are enormous. That's what you have to measure is insulin resistance. And then when that system fails, when your cells are resistant to the point that more insulin is not able to be produced, can't force those cells to take up the sugar, now there's chronic elevation of your blood glucose. It damages the endothelial cells, which leads to hypertension uh, because of the narrowing of those vessels, leads to the ribesogenic effect. And now those red blood cells are soaked in high levels of blood sugar and they get glycosylated. And how do we measure that? As an increase in your A1C over time. So slowly we start to measure that ribesogenic effect. But long before what someone's A1C reaches 6.5, where we call them diabetic, that damage is being an A1C of 5.7, 5.8, 5.9, 6, 6. Oh, you're pre -diabetic. No, the same intravascular injury is happening with your A1C is, is 5.9 or 7.8. But we call 6.5 that arbitrary number at which we begin treatment. So it's a continuum, but we use a particular number as a measure for treatment. So we don't... How, why, why are people not so, so skeptical, about, skeptical about this? Because people have bought into the lipid heart hypothesis, where it's saturated fat that causes damage to your blood vessels. Because when you do those autopsies and you see all this fat clogging the vessels of obese people and of uh, um, diabetics and of uh, um, smokers, and their CAC score, their, calcium, uh, 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 their coronary artery calcium score is through the roof, and you measure all this plaque, this calcification of the plaque. Remember, calcium is just factor two of the clotting cascade. It gets deposited in that lipid uh, emulsion. They make the assumption that it's the fat that co that's causing that. And they make the assumption when your LDL levels are high that LDL is causing the problem. If you can flip your mind, as long as you believe that LDL is causative of an injury, you will never ever accept the fact that it's carbohydrates. And you will fall victim over and over and over and over again to the false lipid heart hypothesis. And after 70 years and trillions of dollars of research, it still remains a hypothesis. There is no proof. So mm -hmm. uh, uh, that's the problem. And when we remove fat from, especially saturated fat from the diet, food tastes like crap. So what did we add in to get food a better taste? Is sugar. Yeah. And there's the problem. The other, the other way to look at it is this way. And, and I'm going to say something a bit that may seem a bit blasphemous. Carbohydrates are not the problem. 
Carbohydrates are not the problem. There are two tandem issues that have become the problem. So as an analogy, let's look at, and everybody talks about this when they don't know what the hell they're talking about. Let's talk about tribes in the Amazon jungle. Okay. Tribes in the Amazon jungle chew cocoa leaves. And if you've ever chewed a cocoa leaf and, I, leaf, and I've had that thing, it relaxes you a little bit, but certainly the amount of opioid in that cocoa leaf is so trivial that it has a mild sedative effect, a mild medicinal effect, but no harm is done and it's certainly not heavily addictive because the concentration in those cocoa leaves is pathetically small. So those tribes in the Amazon jungle use that cocoa medicinally, those cocoa leaves medicinally, but it doesn't cause them any harm. Then if you take those cocoa leaves and you stick them all in a bucket, you add emulsifiers to them and you extract the opioid from those cocoa leaves and you concentrate it. Now you've got a white powder called cocaine and heroin. And you now inject or snort that cocaine and heroin in a population that is vulnerable to addictive behavior. That very cocoa leaf that had no, that caused no harm has now been hyper-concentrated and presented to people in a highly endorphin activating addictive form. And a couple of squirts of heroin, I haven't done this experiment, a couple of squirts of heroin, you talk to your patients, you talk to them, they're instantly addicted. And therein lies the problem. And the problem is further perseverated by people being concerned about oxycodone. And clearly the oxycodone and Percocet was a major issue in terms of providing people opioids in pill form. But the reality is this, very, very few people that took oxy and Percocet, unless it was intentional, turned blue and died not nearly in the rates at which people that take heroin fentanyl do the same thing. So it's the hyper-concentration of the drug that is leading to the harm. The addiction is a separate story. A lot of people become addicted, but it's the harm that's the issue. In exactly the same way, you, you come back to Africa where I'm from, and you walk around with Bushmen on the lands of Africa where they have access to roots and to plants and occasionally a little sour fruit that has grown naturally that has not been genetically engineered by humans. There is carbohydrate in that, but the carbohydrate levels are trivial, even in people eating hunter-gatherer type naturally occurring food. Nothing that we human beings currently eat, at least in our urban environment, is natural. There is nothing natural about an apple, about a banana, about wheat, about corn, about barley. There is nothing natural about that. It's been hybridized over and over again to make us more successful as a species. And what they've done is they've super concentrated the carbohydrates in that. Now we refine that. And we put those in cakes and we bake with them and we put them in cereal and we add sugar to them. Now we've done exactly the same with rudimentary carbohydrates that have a survival, non-harmful aspect as food to augment the survivability of people in the harsh lands of Africa, for example, as hunter-gatherers. And we've hyper-concentrated it. And now it is no longer a food. It is now a drug that has the same endorphin activating properties as heroin, as crystal meth. So that's the first issue is the concentration of the drug, whether it's heroin or simple sugar that we've concentrated. The second issue that governs both of those is a massive increase in the vulnerability toward addictive behavior, in particular in physicians. And primarily addictive behavior requires three things. Number one, it requires a comprehensive, comprehensively deficient 
effort-based emotion management system. So a lot of us physicians are raised, not all of us, but there are two parenting styles or types that predispose to highly addictive behavior. The first one, and I'm a victim of this, or I'm a product of this, are people that are raised in an authoritarian family. The other group are people that are raised in a permissive family. So the way, and I'm a surgeon, what the hell do I know about psychology? Well, I'll give you my two cents worth, and this is my surgical opinion, is that all human beings are productive in what we do. We do jobs, we work, we, we are very good at what we do, and more and more pressure in our society is for us to be productive. Just like a powerful engine is highly productive. But if you look under the hood of a gasoline, burn, gasoline burning car, let's say it's a Maserati, there is an incredibly sophisticated cooling system that takes up space, takes up energy from that engine, reduces the space the engine occupies, reduces its ultimate effectiveness, by, but it is critically important to increase the efficiency of the engine because the byproduct of productivity for that engine is heat and the cooling system cools the engine to make it more effective. In exactly the same way, human beings, when we're working hard, when we're studying, when we're being productive, the byproduct of that productivity is emotional tension, anxiety, stress, fear, depression, anger, uh, frustration, boredom, pleasure, all of that I call emotional tension. Human beings should be raised with an equally effective, diverse cooling system. And our cooling system are the strategies that activate endorphins that help us to relax. But more than that, an effective cooling system not only gives you endorphin activation and relaxation, there should also ideally be a time component involved where you can connect with and process those tough issues that are driving your emotions. If you had a fight with someone, if you've got some difficult issues you're dealing with, you need to be able to connect and process those issues in order to resolve the emotion that's attached to it. So an effort-based emotion management system, the effort relaxes you, but there's a time component. Let's say going for a walk. There's a time component by which you can connect with and process those issues. And at the end of the walk, the reward is on the back end where you're feeling great about the fact that you put that effort in. But in an authoritarian system, in an authoritarian system, our parents and then us, we become how we were raised, put ridiculously high uh, expectations on whatever it is we do. That makes us good at what we do. When you're being productive, you want ridiculously high expectations. You want to be as perfect as you can be in what you do. As a surgeon, if I'm not pretty close to being perfect, my patients suffer. And I strive for perfection. But when it comes to emotion management, we want to do exactly the opposite. We do not want to have any form of expectation because the reality is no human beings are perfect. And if you then go for a walk to relax you, but your belief is that the walk should have been a certain distance, a certain speed, a certain uh, time, and you fall short, then you've destroyed all of the pleasure you derived from the walk because it wasn't long enough, hard enough, or fast enough. So if you create ridiculous expectations of yourself, you put a lot of effort in, the pride in the effort is lost because there's a, that little gap between effort and expectation is filled with failure. And then we have this highly erosive sense of failure. And it is very erosive to our self-confidence and our self-esteem. And no matter how wonderful we are, we create this facade, this white coat that defends people from seeing 
how insecure we actually are. And that insecurity is because of this erosion of self-esteem and self-confidence, because no matter how much effort we put in, it's never good enough. And then we tend to triangulate to some inanimate substance that gives us an instant reward, whether it's a behavior, for example, uh, 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 sexual harassment or gambling, or whether it is a drug, it could be nicotine, alcohol, uh, uh, diverting opioids or diverting uh, uh, stimulant drugs or carbohydrates that are ubiquitously available. We divert to that drug to give us a, an instant sense of gratification and well-being. And yes, there's a price to be paid on the back end, negativity, guilt, harm, repression of our issues. But all we desire is that instant, uncontaminated high. On the permissive side, and few adopters are on the permissive side, most of us are on the authoritarian side, but on the permissive side, we have all the intent to go for the walk. But somewhere between uh, going outside for the walk and the tub of ice cream in the fridge, we never ever put the effort in. We triangulate to the inanimate thing because it's so much easier than putting the effort in. And because we don't put the effort in, we never build up self-esteem and self-confidence. And when our self-esteem and self-confidence is in the toilet, that completely uh, uh, screws us up as human beings. Then we have to create a facade, this wonderful facade that protects people from seeing who we are. And especially in surgery, and believe me, my past is all about this, is the concept of narcissism. Now, narcissism is wonderful in productivity because as a surgeon, you want to know that you cannot make mistakes at least to a certain extent that allows us to cut people open and remove tumors and correct disease without that concept of questioning fallibility. But at the same time, that is a value of an authoritarian personality type in what I do and what a lot of doctors have to do. But at the same time, it can lead, if it's excessive, can lead to a huge amount of harm. And a lot of disruptive doctors are those that are so insecure internally that they have to create this facade where everybody bounces off. It's called the hardcore facade. And we see those doctors, we interact with them all the time. They may be excellent at what they do, but ultimately that insecurity is there. So you've got your hardcore doctors that are that narcissistic, oh, he's a difficult person. But then you've also got the fat doctor that's this happy-go-lucky doctor, but they have the same addiction. You've got, oh, I didn't know that he was using fentanyl, when the doctor turns up dead on the toilet seat in the OR, I've had an anesthesiologist that happened a while ago, or uh, when the doctor is the smoker trying to tell people not to smoke, or the doctor comes to work drunk one day, or the doctor is obese or diabetic. Mm -hmm. It's all the same issue. So obesity, the, the, the nature of the substance defines the disease, but ultimately all of those at the root at the heart of them is a fundamentally eroded or undeveloped sense of self, self-esteem, self-confidence. And as physicians, especially in the Western hemisphere, the whole focus is on productivity and we don't allow ourselves time to develop and practice our cooling system. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot. Burnout is the other piece that comes in there. Absolutely. Sorry for the, for the long explanation, but no, it's, it's good. So and I people to understand that. totally agree with you. And I see that a lot with um, people I work with in that, that feeling of never quite being enough, where every single thing you do in your day, you're questioning, did you actually do it well enough? Or is somebody down the road doing it better? 
uh, is such a stressor that then drives eating. Because like you said, eating is a simple thing. Exactly. And if you look at more and more the metrics that they apply on physicians to be able to measure how effective we are, it's a bunch of administrators that are applying uh, post-mortem metrics to us. They analyze our infection rates. They analyze our uh, length of stays. They analyze return to the, they analyze everything. And, and part of that metric, unfortunately, is that if a patient has an LDL over 100, they need to be on a statin. And if you fail to prescribe a statin, you're a bad doctor. So a lot of those metrics put us under extraordinary pressure. And more and more, we doctors have become therapeutic rather than biological in our approach. The number of patients I see in my practice that are on thyroid medication but do not have a diagnosis other than hypothyroidism is through the roof. Over 70% of all patients that walk into my office are on a thyroid medication. And less than 25% of them, we've done this analysis, actually have a true diagnosis, whether it's Hashimoto's, Graves, whatever it may be, thyroid cancer, thyroid resection, doesn't matter. Because what the doctor does, does the blood work, sees that the number is low and puts them on a medication and has no idea why they have the disease. I mean, think about how ludicrous this is. If diabetes, type 2 diabetes is a disease of chronic excessive carbohydrate consumption, how the hell can we manage a diabetic by giving them a fixed amount of carbohydrate to eat per meal and then putting them on medication to clean the carbohydrates out of their blood vessels? That's like telling everyone, if you had a medication to sober people up very quickly, you have to drink a quart of, of whiskey every day, good Canadian whiskey or some Crown Royal every day, and then here, take this medication to sober up before you go back to work. Yeah, it's mind-boggling. It is mind-boggling, and, yeah. and it is so simple. You cannot have type 2 diabetes, and you cannot be obese if you do not eat carbohydrates. But then you go on some, some diet, and, and here's the problem, that a lot of people are going to maybe get angry with me as they hear this. All diets fail about 98% of the time. I don't care if it's a vegan diet, if it's Weight Watchers, if it's a keto diet, if it's um, intermittent fasting, if it's a carnivore diet, any intentional form of caloric reduction, any word that is associated with the word diet will fail almost always. And the reason for that is because it is highly deprivational. By the time you're an alcoholic, if you quit drinking, which you have to do as an, if you want to, if you want to put your alcoholism to remission, if you then look in that alcoholics emotion management toolkit, by the time you're an alcoholic, you've basically got booze and cobwebs. You remove the alcohol, now they've got nothing to help them to deal with their emotional needs. So everybody that's worked with alcoholics successfully before understands that you can quit drinking any given day. But for the rest of your life, you need to spend a lot of introspective time rebuilding or building for the first time an effective, diverse emotion management system that is preferably effort-based to replace the role that alcohol had. But when you go on a ketogenic diet to lose weight or any darn diet, to lose weight or deal with your diabetes, you're leaving a massive hole in your life. Mm -hmm. And nobody talks about the replacement, the intentional replacement, particularly when you tell people, oh, you have to exercise to lose, uh, to burn calories. Well, hell, when I was 300 pounds, to tell me to go on a tread, get on a treadmill makes me feel like crap because to, to lug 300 pounds around for you know, 20 minutes on a treadmill is awful. Being there, done that. But the machine says I burnt a thousand calories, but I feel like crap. What makes me feel better? A tub of ice cream, and that's only 50 calories. Yeah. 
you know, that, that's part of the ridiculousness of a harm reduction or a moderation approach to type 2 diabetes and obesity. And I think that, you know, what you bring up is a really good point that people don't prepare themselves for when they do decide to cut sugar and other processed carbohydrates or whatever other things they're cutting out of their diet is that if that's been your emotional coping skill, you will feel emotionally crummy. And that's often, like you said, not expected. And then that leads to almost immediate relapse because if you haven't planned for it, and I talk about this with my smokers too, is you have to figure out why you're smoking and what you're going to do instead before you actually quit. Same thing with the food is you have to figure those things out or else it's not going to be sustainable. And that's a challenge, right? Like building those coping skills takes, like you're saying, time and practice and refinement over a long span because you haven't been doing that during the time you've been using the food as your coping skill. Right. And I think I, just again, I, it's not food, it's carbohydrates because yeah, food sorry. doesn't make you fat. But the other part is that pro, you're absolutely right. I, I, I just love what you said there because the process ends about 10 minutes after you die. Mm-hmm. You can quit eating carbohydrates on any given day, but unless you spend the rest of your life building and establishing routines, rituals, and habits, because addiction management is about breaking certain habits. Number one with addiction, you cannot break a habit if you're still doing it. And number two is you can't form new habits unless you are doing them in a ritualistic, knee-jerk manner. So you want to intentionally do that habit, do that thing every time if you believe it is going to be the thing that you do. If you go for a walk every morning, I take my dog for a walk every morning. That wasn't something I chose to do. That was something I had to do at first. Now, even when I'm traveling, I'm still going for a walk in the morning because it is my habit. It is my ritual. You see me drinking coffee here. Uh, this was made at five o'clock this morning. That's my Michigan cup. That I was fat was a Coke and M&Ms. And a snack is always an emotional event. A snack is the equivalent of, of, of a smoker going outside for a cigarette. A snack is never for the nutritional value. It is always for this. So all of those concepts are critically important. But as we, as I kind of digressed from, the most important thing is to understand that number one, carbohydrates are no longer no longer a they no longer belong in the food category they belong in the drug category category along with all those other drugs and once you can make that distinction then you can more effectively help your patients because there are plenty of people out there that drink alcohol but they're not alcoholics there are plenty of or some people out there that can eat carbohydrates that are not uh, obese or diabetic so for those folks moderation is a dogma that works but to tell me as a fat guy that you're, if I just did your dogma effectively, then I'm going to be healthy as well. That is ludicrous. And most dietitians adopt that. Because it works for me, it has to work for you. That is not true. I can drink alcohol in moderation, but I would never, ever try to enforce that dogma on an alcoholic patient of mine because I know they've lost control of the relationship. The other critical thing where we really get screwed up and I mentioned the dietitians in a little bit, and more and more, it's not their fault. They were trained in this paradigm and they've become that person, just like I've become, was raised to be an addict, um, is this, that when you talk to alcoholics, you focus very heavily at first, as you've said, on what skills are you gonna develop over time, but first and foremost, we gotta quit drinking. How much time do we spend telling alcoholics what they should drink? Mm-hmm. Zero. 
Nobody talks to them about what the best quality of water is to drink. Nobody tells a smoker what the best quality of air is to breathe. We tell them to quit smoking. But the, the addiction mentality, the addiction process has been hijacked by a bunch of people that love to squibble and quibble and argue about what the healthiest food is to eat. The reality is this, if you are not eating carbohydrates as an obese, diabetic, or metabolically challenged person, it doesn't matter what the hell you eat. I don't care if you're mostly vegetarian or mostly carnivore. What you do want is an adequate spectrum of saturated fat and protein and complex amino acids. Other than that, I do not care. So a vegan diet is clearly a diet of nutritional deficiency because there is not adequate uh, complex protein and there's certainly not adequate uh, um, complex fat in or saturated fat in a vegan diet. And my reality comes from this perspective is that if you have to go to a vitamin store to supplement your diet, that is an incomplete diet. Your diet should come from the, your, your nutrients, macro and micro, should come from the food you eat. But a vegetarian who occasionally wants to eat renewable sources of protein and fat, such as dairy or eggs and, and eggs and dairy, absolutely fine. You can live extremely healthily in that way. And the reality is even vegans can be pretty damn healthy for a long period of time if it is a vegetable-based vegan diet, not a carbohydrate-based vegan diet. In other words, a plant-based, not a carb-based, not a grain or carb-based uh, vegan diet. And the same is true for carnivores. If you want to go pure carnivore, that's fine. It is highly sustainable in terms of macro and micronutrients. You don't have to eat vegetables. You don't need it for bowel function. If you eat fiber, it's great for your bowels, but lions don't get constipated. Their poop comes from salt, sugar, salt uh, water, and fat. Um, and that manages our bowel function. So human beings are wonderfully adaptable. But what we haven't yet adapted to is heroin, and we haven't yet adapted to heroin-like carbohydrates, and therein lies the problem. Mm -hmm. Does that make some sense to you? Absolutely, and I think that's a really good point to um, kind of wrap up on, and in that, you know, it's the stuff that we label as food in our grocery stores is not actually food from a biological standpoint or an evolutionary standpoint, and it's not recognized that way, and I've um, like you've talked about this in other talks is that our, our brain doesn't recognize that food. You mentioned it earlier on today too, that it, it doesn't recognize that as food with satiety signals either. And I think anybody who's ever, I always talk about finding yourself at the bottom of a Costco sized bag of chips and not feeling like completely physically uncomfortable, it knows that, right? Like you can, it's amazing how much of that you can eat. Just addicts are immune to risk, though. They, we don't care about how shitty we're going to feel after we've eaten a bag of chips. All we mm -hmm. need is right now we need that bag of chips. I don't care if I'm going to turn blue and die. All I need is the high from my heroin. Smokers are immune to the labels on a cigarette pack. Yeah, absolutely. What are the um, tools that you use with people that you're working with at the beginning to start replacing some of those coping mechanisms? Like you mentioned walking quite a bit. What other ones do you use? Well, the first step is is ownership. So, you know, there's the there's the great book um, written by Prochaska called Changing for Good. And you never jump into action as your first stage. It's contemplation and ownership that you have the problem. Then a decision that you actually want to change. And then you can slowly change. And the goal is to eat the elephant or to be the tortoise, not the rabbit. All too often we leap into the deep end and we can't swim. So uh, the first step is to take this progressively and in addiction management, everything you remove had a positive purpose and therefore it needs to be replaced 
by something that is equally or of greater value without harm. And when it comes to an effective emotion management system, a lot of people who successfully quit, quit smoking gain weight because they didn't quit smoking. They just went from nicotine to carbohydrates. So recognizing that we want you to go from addictive substance, whatever that may be, carbohydrates, get rid of them progressively to the point of zero, but then replace them. And there are four pillars of a healthy emotion management system, an effort-based emotion management system. The first one is physical activity. The second one is something creative, whether it's gardening, whether it's music, whether it's sculpture or art, whether it's reading, writing, fashion, photography, cooking, something creative. The third one is either a spiritual connection or a meditative period of time. And really the, the, the quintessential part of each one of these is they have effort up front. You've got to put the effort in to initiate the action, whether it is reading or art or going for a walk. There is a time component that involves connecting to your subconscious and processing, a meditative component, and the reward happens on the back end. You have to acknowledge the pride because it doesn't come automatically and can be very easily eroded. When you, when you shoot up with heroin, the high is biochemically there. Uh, it's going to happen no matter what. When you eat ice cream, the high is inherent to the substance. That's why it's so addictive. But when you're doing something for the emotional well-being, you have to own and recognize and give yourself that self-approval. And self-approval is self-care. So it's physical activity, uh, um, something from the creative arts, spiritual, spirituality, meditative, uh, a meditative component. And the thing that most human beings believe they're the best at, and we're all typically awful at this to begin with, which is empathetic human connection. And particularly doctors. Doctors are incredibly, or find it incredibly difficult to be vulnerable. We mm -hmm. find, that's why we wear white coats. We wear, I don't wear a white coat, but the reason, and I gave that up a while ago because I recognized it was my facade. It allowed me to put a doctor's hat on and not be the human being first. And your best doctors are doctors who have medical knowledge but are empathetic human beings to begin with. And, and because you can have all the medical knowledge you want to, if you cannot convey that to your patients, because you, have, you do not have empathy, you're not able to look at whether your advice is going to be received effectively by your patients. There is no value to doing that. And all too often we teach a patient how to inject uh, insulin into their veins. We teach a patient how to monitor their blood sugar and expect them to do it. Less than 25% of type 2 diabetics ever check their blood, blood sugars, and less than 50% of them take their medication like they should. So unless you have empathetic human connection, you are not being the best doctor you can be, but more importantly for, for yourself, having the ability to explore vulnerability in an empathetic criticism, judgment-free zone, and having those relationships is critically important. And your most vulnerable doctors are incapable of personal vulnerability. Hmm. So those are my four pillars. Physical activity, creative, uh, creative uh, activity, um, spirituality or, human, or, or meditation, and empathetic human connection, which is all a way to connect with and process the issues that are driving your emotions. Mm -hmm. I think those are great. And I, I agree with you as physicians and, you know, some of this comes from our training and that we're 
I think it's getting better. But when I trained, we were not taught any of that, right? You were taught the opposite of that. You were taught, yeah, you were up all night, but, you know, keep on going because you still have another day of work to go do or uh, still show up for those academic half days. And but, but, uh, you're right. You're absolutely right. And I think some homage is being paid to that. But at the same time, there are specific rules that prevent us from being human beings first. And we have to be so super cautious, particularly here in the US, and I think the US is different than Canada. The first concept that most doctors think about or, or consider in the US is risk. Mm -hmm. Risk to self, risk to the facility, and then benefit to the patient. And somewhere in that equation comes money. So to my mind as a physician and as someone who's working hard at healing himself, I believe that the first criteria of being a healthy doctor, of being an effective doctor is benefit to the patient. And you wanna mitigate that with risk to the patient. And if you're empathetic and, and you're doing the best you possibly can, the patient is going to respect that, understand that. And even if you're not perfect, and none of us are, even if you're not perfect, they're not gonna hold that against you. But the greatest fear, certainly in the US, is that your patients are going to hold something against you. And we, pack, we practice petrified medicine. We order the test to document rather than the test is necessary. I mean, I can go through a litany of those. So it is an, the burden of that psychologically on the best of us is enormous. Yeah. And we have no outlet valve. That's why burnout is through the roof in this country. Yeah. And it's a huge problem. You have to, so you have to intentionally create your own outlet valves is essentially what you're saying through those four pillars. And Correct, but you it. also have to learn, right, the, the safest way you can practice medicine, apart from being good and knowing your stuff, is also knowing when you don't know something. Mm -hmm. But that's often perceived by a lot of doctors as a weakness, saying, hey, I don't know, let me ask my colleague, or here's a boundary, let me refer you to somebody else. And, and evaluating what you do know and what you don't know, too often, too often and we speculate or we put someone on a thyroid medication without asking why they need to be on a thyroid medication. So we don't ask why anymore. We, we practice recipe-based medicine. And, and the burnout from that is enormous because you know you're doing something. And if you see the patient over and over and over again and their vitamin D levels are low and yet you're giving them 50,000 units of D3 every week, the reason their vitamin D levels are low is because they're not eating fat and they're not able to absorb ADEK and insulin blocks the conversion of cholesterol to cholecalciferol. There's your mechanism. It's related to insulin resistance and a lack of fat in the diet. But you keep injecting vitamin D into them, their D stays low. And what the hell am I doing as a doctor? And, and I mean, the simple little things like that make you ineffective. Now you've got to explain to the patient why their vitamin D levels are so low. And what do you do? You blame the patient. So many bariatric surgeons blame the patients for gaining weight. Mm -hmm. Yeah, seen that okay. for sure. <laughs> and and those are the the issues with with empathy, with human connection. So, I, I, empathy is such an important part of healthcare, and so poorly tolerated by the administration of healthcare. We are no, we are a large part of how we're trained precludes us from being empathetic. And that is so challenging. And, and that leads to distrust of patients in the healthcare system. And that erosion of confidence affects us at the, at the 
rock face tremendously, tremendously. Yeah. It's all, all a big cycle, hey? Like, you know, it all feeds into it. And then when, when food or sorry, carbohydrates are your coping mechanism, uh, it all kind of leads back to the, that own aspect of our health. The, right. And, and you know what I've chosen to do, and maybe erroneously so, I've chosen to trust two people. I've chosen to trust myself and to trust my patients. Hmm. And, and if I can develop that level of trust with my patients and tell them, look, I may be wrong about certain things. I may be right about certain things. Here's my opinion. I'm not telling you you have to. I'm sharing my best information with you and let's make this decision together. And we may be wrong, we may be right. But if you can develop a bond of trust between yourself and your patient, that is the single best way you can most effectively help your patients. The problem with that is we're not allowed the time to do that. We're not allowed the time. If you've got to see 20 patients in an hour as a family practice doctor to make book, to make enough money, you're not able to develop a level of trust. It's far easier to give you that. And if you can't trust your patients and trust yourself, what self-value is there? What integrity do you have as a human being knowing that you're practicing ineffective medicine or having to distort that reality? And that burns the hell out of us as doctors. Mm -hmm. So uh, all of those metrics are so, so important to understand. And while mental health is a big focus and will be an even greater focus after this COVID issue burns out or goes away or, or subsides, for years, mental health has been the unaddressed elephant in the room. Absolutely. And our form of mental health management has been the least offensive drug. Mm -hmm. And the least offensive drug is what is in doctor's offices throughout the country, throughout the world, which is sugar and starch. Yeah. And hospital cafeterias. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, absolutely. So okay. I'll be in the middle of the night in the hospital. It, like it's everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And every nurse's station doesn't have little bowls of broccoli. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Especially not so, at 2 a.m. Right. But, but, but 50 years ago, and even when I was in training in the, in the late 70s, early 80s, basically the 80s, there were doctors that could smoke anywhere in the hospital. They served alcohol with our lunchtime meals in the hospital. Wow. Now, you're not, I mean, if I've sat down and had a beer with, with lunch in the hospital, I would be admonished upside down. If I lit up a cigarette while I was on rounds, I'd be crucified. But if I broke out a pack of donuts, the nurses would rush to me and the other doctors would rush to me and thank me for this wonderful treat. What I'm actually saying is I brought you a little bit of diabetes and a little bit of obesity. Enjoy. Yeah. That's just like saying I brought you a pack of lung cancer. Enjoy it. And this may be one of the good things that comes out of COVID is that I don't know what all hospitals are doing, but our nurses stations have been completely removed of anything extra, right? For cleaning purposes. So there is no food and snacks anymore right now in the nurses station. And I think for people who do struggle with sugar addiction and you have the overlap of like, you know, the sleep deprivation and the long hours, that's a real trigger for a lot of physicians as you walk through that nurse's station and you see the food and you end up eating it. Even if in your normal environment, you control your exposure a lot. Uh, so I think Absolutely. that could be a good thing that maybe will continue 
we'll see. And I think I think Canada's even in a good way behind the U.S. in that regard. What I, I I've lived in a number of countries. I'm obviously not American or Canadian by birth. And one of the comments I always make is that in the rest of the world, although it's fast catching up in a bad way, in the rest of the world, to a certain extent, you have to go out of your way to be fat. In the U.S., and I think Canada is very close to this, mm-hmm. you have to go out of your way not to be fat. Because carbohydrates are ubiquitously prevalent. Starbucks doesn't sell coffee. Starbucks sells crystal meth occasionally flavored with coffee. Just walk into one any day. And it's the frappo, lapo, low-fat, high-sugar coffee spike drink that you drink three or four times a day. One of the places I became fat, and, and in fact, it's interesting, little Canadian story. There was a second cup kiosk in the bottom of Mount Sinai Hospital in the lobby that was the second highest wealth generating second cup in the early 90s of any of the second cups in Canada. And I would go past there three or four times a day, and I loved them, the big oat brand muffins that were bigger than the biggest steak I could possibly eat, and the tall coffee with four spoons of sugar in it. How could you not be fat? Yeah. And the only way I could not be fat is if I was diabetic. Yeah. But that was, that was my introduction from South Africa to Canada, and it was glorious. And then I went to Michigan to do my fellowship, and between the, hospital, between the OR and the ER was a Wendy's, and we had free access to Wendy's. Oh, wow. That would, so 60- Wendy's is my, my food of issue from oh, residency, and so that would have been total disaster for me. At least I had to drive three minutes to get my Wendy's when I was a resident. <laughs> I, I can tell you, Wendy and I had the affair of the lifetime. I always talked about needing to break up with Wendy. Oh, Lord, we had an affair. And, and we have these little tickets that you could hand in and just get whatever you want to. So it was the 64-ounce Dr. Pepper and a burger oh. and fries on the way down to the ER and on the way back. And as a pediatric surgeon, surgery fellow, pre-limitations, we would spend on average 120 hours a week in the hospital. Wow. So that was a lot of Wendy's. There's 168 hours in a week for anyone. And I've, I've, I have intimate knowledge of each of those as a doctor. Now the kids only, you know what I call an 80 hour work week? I call that Tuesday. Or at least <laughs> that was Tuesday. So, you know, that's where that vulnerability to addictive behavior came from. And yes, they're limiting hours, but they're piling on additional pressure. Yeah. And as physicians, the most important thing that we need to do, I believe, and the most important axiom I can ever remember for my training is this. First and foremost, doctor, heal yourself. Heal yourself. Absolutely. And if we are broken, we really cannot effectively take care of our patients. And part of it is what I call the oxygen mask theory. I know you've got kids. If you're flying on an airplane and you've got a five-year-old and a four-year-old sitting next to you, and suddenly the oxygen pressure goes down and three masks fall from the ceiling. What do you do? And your kids are, <laughs> they're gasping. What do you do? Put your mask on first. What do you, you put your mask on first. Most people are so busy putting masks on, on their kids because they're suffering. It's called self-sacrificing. And the reason they tell you to put your own mask on first is because you're useless to other people if you're dead. Yeah. So the rule is no matter how much they're gasping, put your own mask on first. And the reality is for most, doc- most doctors, especially doctors in a clinical setting, 
we are self-sacrificial. We work ridiculous hours. We expose ourselves to ridiculous viruses with poor protection in order to take care of our patients first, and we self-sacrifice. Well, from a mental health perspective, we self-sacrifice, and when we're in emotional turmoil, we just can't effectively be there for our patients. The most important aspect of Physician Heal Thyself is this. Always take time to breathe your own oxygen first before you help those around you. Because if you're dead inside, you are not effective at helping those around you. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to chat today. I think this has been packed with really good information for physicians trying to understand where their eating and weight concerns actually come from. Uh, can you let people know where they could find you? Yeah, so thank you so much for having me on. This is such a critically important thing, um, at least having doctors in the patient room themselves. Um, the best place to find me, I've got a pretty big uh, presence on YouTube. Um, my channel is called Carb Addiction Doc. I would urge people to subscribe. There are close to 100 short YouTube videos on there covering all the topics we just talked about. Uh, if you subscribe, that helps me out, but they're short. They're about 10 to 15 minutes long. They cover all of this and more, including some of the dietary guidance we give. Um, I'm also on Instagram, same site, uh, Carb Addiction Doc, and I'm on Facebook um, as Robert Sivers or Carb Addiction Doc. And you can friend me on there. You can message me. Um, the other thing, if anybody's interested, throughout North America, we do do uh, consultations, uh, a deep dive into some of these things. and use some of our strategies, the way to access us is to text anywhere in North America to 561-517-0642, and we can set up a consultation either telephonically or by Zoom, and um, we can at least give folks some insight, particularly physicians. We do work with a huge number of physicians uh, uh, in this regard. Excellent. Thank you again for uh, taking the time today. Thanks very much. And thank you for all the wonderful work you're doing. All right. Tons of information in that interview. I found Dr. Sivas very interesting to talk to. He's got such a vast uh, amount of knowledge in the area of obesity and obesity treatment. Uh, what do you think? Send me your comments to info at weightsolutionsforphysicians.ca. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please remember to hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening to it. And if you could share it with somebody that you think would enjoy it as well, I really appreciate that. Thanks so much for listening. Have a fantastic week, everyone. Mm -hmm.